0: Roll, roll, roll your vote strongly as a team. Merrily, 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 hope will be redeemed. Roll, roll, roll your vote strongly as, as, r- as, r- r- as a team. your vote strongly Ho-
1: as a her- team. your vote strongly as a team. your vote
0: strongly as a team. In our last three episodes on Ukraine, we've discussed at length how the corporate two-party system won't save your children. It won't save them from nuclear war, it won't save them from climate collapse, and it won't even save their reproductive rights. Today, we're looking at how a history of Democratic Party cowardice, profiteering, and failures to protect abortion rights have paved the way for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and why voting is not an effective strategy for preventing a far-right fascist takeover. Only a revolutionary shift towards socialism can combat the extreme racial and economic inequality in our nation's healthcare system, and reproductive justice is dependent upon that shift. But before we begin, we just wanted to give a shout out to our patrons on Patreon. We appreciate all of you so much. It takes a lot of heart to support independent journalists and podcasters, especially when we're all getting stiffed by the ruling class. We wanna give a special shout out to our recognized rebel patrons, Janae Saliba, Greta Haneke, Old Left, and to our VIP rebel patron, Liz Font.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And for the rest of you, if you have it in your budgets, we still need support to keep this going. We put many, many hours into researching, writing, searching for audio clips and editing. And someday we hope to make more than 50 cents an hour. We're not there yet, but we have high hopes. We do. (laughs) You can subscribe for as little as $3 per month and any amount makes our continued work possible. All right, let's get on with this week's episode.
0: So the midterms are right around the corner, and we're all being pummeled by the Democratic Party with row, row, row your vote ads and desperate last minute pleas for money. How did we get here, taters? So on June 24th,
1: 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion after almost 50 years in a 6-3 to ruling called Dobbs versus Jackson. According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, abortion has been criminalized or is an unprotected right with partial bans in place in 33 states? Oh my God. It's been completely outlawed in 12 states. That's Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, West Virginia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee and Texas. And the rest of these 33 states have partial bans or no legal protections. This means criminalized abortions for tens of millions of women in this country. This means that reproductive health care isn't just inaccessible, it's illegal, with patients, providers, and supporters facing criminal prosecution for abortions and possibly miscarriages if women are suspected of causing a miscarriage. And in several of these states... There are no exceptions for rape or incest. Many women will die without access to safe and legal abortion, with low income and women of color being the hardest hit, as always within a
0: system of racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time in the nation's history that the Supreme Court has taken away a fundamental constitutional right that it had previously recognized. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is the final nail in the coffin of a decades long assault on reproductive rights. The conservative evangelical Christian right or as Chris Hedges refers to them, the Christian fascists are celebrating this decision. I'd like to play a clip here of white nationalist Vincent James just after Roe v. Wade was overturned.
1: We are the Christian Taliban. This is this is the era of Christian
2: nationalism. Christian nationalism is on the rise and people are thirsty for it. They are hungry for this. And we are the Christian Taliban.
1: And we will not stop until the Handmaid's Tale is a reality. And even worse than that, to be honest. Yes, we do have to start rolling back. The There was this article from The Atlantic where it was like, well, Alito is on a mission to roll back the rights of, of women, to roll back the past hundred years of rights that were given to women. yes.
2: Yes, that is that is what we're doing. And uh, it's only going to get worse for you from here.
0: Jeez, that's sick.
1: Okay, yeah, so that's terrifying. <laughs> it's only going to get worse from here. Yeah, so CrowDads, you recently wrote an article about this topic, which we're kind of basing this episode on. Um, would you like to tell people more
0: about that article and where they could find it? Sure. Thanks, Taters. Um, The article is called Reproductive Rights and the Fight Against Fascism, and it was published in Dissident Voice and Real Progressives, and we can link to it in the show notes.
1: All right. Definitely go check out the full article. We'll be covering some of the material in it, but not everything. So first, let's go over some of the impacts of this landmark constitutional right being overturned.
0: Yes. Well, before we say anything about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I think we need to step back and have a common understanding of how reproductive rights already work in the United States and how they have worked from a class based perspective.
1: Yeah, that's really important. And that's kind of how we look at every issue here on Ads and Taters, from a
0: socialist lens. Exactly. So many healthcare providers, pro-choice activists, sociologists, and legal scholars have understood for decades how essential reproductive rights are in a free and democratic society. The right to control your own body is a basic human right. It's what separates small D democratic societies from barbaric authoritarian, patriarchal societies. And as Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, so plainly states, forced childbirth is slavery. Women who cannot make their own decisions about whether or not to have babies are enslaved because the state claims ownership of their bodies and the right to dictate the use to which their bodies must be put. So women who cannot exercise this right are not living in democratic societies. They're being subjected to laws that alter their basic human rights as free human beings.
1: Which is absolutely terrible. No one should have their basic rights infringed upon, but capitalists never have cared about basic rights. And we've long known that we don't
0: actually live in a small d democracy. That's very true. But there's still this pervasive illusion of democracy that is advertised by the ruling class, and especially by white liberal bourgeois feminists. There's an image that feeds into this, you know, implying that If we just go vote, we can somehow get our rights back. But what this narrative completely misses is the fact that large numbers of women in the United States, perhaps the majority at this point, don't have and haven't had these basic reproductive rights for a very long time, if ever. This is where a lot of bourgeois feminists want to turn away and not acknowledge what it means for many women of color, for poor and working class women to live in the United States under our system of racial capitalism. But this moment is really an opportunity for us, I think, using reproductive rights as a lens to understand what capitalism is and how it actually works, which people enjoy basic human rights in this country and who never has really been able to exercise them. So, even before this terrible blow to Roe v. Wade, which could be seen as the final nail in the coffin of a decades long assault on reproductive rights, let's talk about who has and has not been able to access reproductive health care in this capitalist society. In terms of the ongoing erosion of abortion rights, who has been most affected and who will continue to be most affected by the mass criminalization of reproductive health care?
1: Well, as we know, under capitalism, people with money and resources will continue to be able to access abortion, although not as easily as before this decision. Birth control and other forms of re- reproductive health care also will be accessible for those who have the money. And people who don't have money and don't have resources will not be able to access these things. Mm-hmm. And this is a war against the poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of explaining how this attack is a part of the class war. Mm -hmm. This is something that Democrats never explain. They focus on identity politics and make it seem like it is an attack on all women. But in reality, this is an attack on poor women. Women of the ruling class have always have ways to get abortions, no matter what the laws are. You know, it isn't the same for the working class. Um, Can you go over some of the statistics that you quoted
0: in your article? Sure. Let's start with a, um, an audio clip from Michelle Goodwin on a recent Democracy Now interview. Goodwin is the founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and a professor at the University of California, Irvine.
2: The United States ranks 55th in the world in terms of maternal mortality. It is not in league with Germany, France, its peer nations. Instead, it's in peer company with nations that still publicly lash and stone women. In 2016, the Supreme Court's own record showed that women were 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. Once we flash what this looks like in terms of race, then we really get a sense of the horror that's behind all of this. And again, with the Supreme Court deciding that it would pay no attention to it. So in Mississippi, we're looking at 118 times, black women more likely to die 118 times by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. According to Mississippi's own data from their Department of Health, A black woman, 80 percent of the cardiac deaths in that state occur to black women. Black women don't make up 80 percent of the female population in the state, but are 80 percent of the cardiac deaths during pregnancy. And nationally, they're three and a half times more likely than white counterparts to die due to maternal mortality. But Amy, that's not all. If you actually look at certain counties within these anti-abortion states, then you see that black women may be five or 10 or 15 times more likely to die by being forced to carry a pregnancy to term than by being able to have the medical care of an abortion. And it's just that glaring and alarming. And what's so stunning about it is that the Supreme Court gives no consideration to this data.
1: So, from those statistics, we can see that this is definitely a class war. This isn't just about identity, it's a war on
0: working class women. Yeah, those are terrible statistics about Black maternal mortality. And it makes sense that maternal mortality, as well as other health risks from pregnancy, are higher for poor and working class women. And in addition to facing more restrictive abortion laws, women of color, poor and working class women, are much more likely to lack financial access for abortion care. Since 1976, the Hyde Amendment has prohibited federal funds, i.e. Medicaid funds, from being used for abortions. The Hyde Amendment is something we hear about a lot in regard to this issue. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Sure. It was named for a US House representative named Henry Hyde, a Republican from Illinois, And in 1976, he attached a rider onto a house appropriations bill, which prohibited Medicaid from covering abortions. Over time, Congress multiplied that single rider into a slew of restrictions that prevent federal government programs and agencies, including Indian Health Services and the Veterans Health Administration from providing coverage for abortion. So today, when we talk about the Hyde Amendment, We're talking about all these restrictions, even though some of them came later. Henry Hyde went on the record as saying, quote, I certainly would like to prevent if I could legally anybody having an abortion, a rich woman, a middle class woman, or a poor woman. Unfortunately, the only vehicle available is the Medicaid bill, end quote. So the
1: Hyde Amendment is a direct attack on poor women, and it's been with us since 1976.
0: That's right. So for decades, poor and working class women haven't had access to abortions through their insurance, if that's Medicaid, which it is in many cases. And let's talk a little bit about Indigenous women. According to a 2022 Amnesty International report, nearly one in three American Indian and Alaska Native women have been raped. That's more than twice the average for white women and is probably an undercount given the huge gaps in data collection. The criminalization of abortion services will be particularly devastating to Native women, femmes, and two-spirit people.
1: Yeah. So Indigenous women are at least twice as likely to experience sexual assault as other women in the United States. Mm -hmm. So this group of women is much more likely than white women to end up with an unwanted pregnancy. Right. Not to mention all the other health impacts from this kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. So how accessible has abortion been for Indigenous women in the United
0: States? Well, because of the Hyde Amendment, Indian Health Services hasn't been allowed to perform abortions since 1982 because they're federally funded. In the 1990s, there were some exceptions made to IHS policy in cases of rape or incest, but coverage varies from state to state and depending on state law, this exception was not universal. So on top of the fact that Indian Health Services has a terrible history of abusing indigenous women, They've participated in forced sterilization programs at the behest of the U.S. government throughout the 1960s and 70s. So essentially, post-colonization, Indigenous women in the United States have really never had reproductive rights.
1: That's awful. And the Indian Health Services is often the only health service available for Indigenous women who live on reservations. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the only affordable health service around,
0: right? Right. I mean, expecting Native women to be able to access or pay for private abortion services off the reservation is pretty unrealistic in a lot of cases.
1: So just to kind of overview, Indigenous women are far more likely to have unwanted pregnancies as a result of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Yet Indian Health Services is a colonial organization with a history of atrocities against Native women, and they won't perform abortions.
0: Generally, that's right. So in looking at everyone affected by the Hyde Amendment, poor and working class women on Medicaid, veterans and indigenous women who have needed this kind of reproductive health care have never had consistent access to abortion services since the late 1970s. And by the way, Joe Biden has been a staunch supporter of the Hyde Amendment for decades.
3: See, I'm a little, I'm a bit bit of an odd man out in my party. I do not vote for funding for abortion. I voted against partial birth abortion. Mm -hmm. To limit it, and I vote for no restrictions on a woman's right to be able to have an abortion under Roe v. Wade, and so I am. Uh, I made everybody angry. I've made the right to life people angry because I won't support a constitutional amendment or limitations on a woman's right uh, to exercise her constitutional right as defined by Roe v. Wade, and I've made the group, uh, the women's groups, and others very angry because I won't support public funding and I won't support partial birth abortion. Well, sometimes making everybody angry is okay. Well, I me mean, put it this way. I One of the things I decided a long time ago, and it's going to sound corny, uh, but you have to be happy with yourself.
1: Well, that's just Biden being happy with himself again.
0: I'm so glad he's happy with himself. I mean, that's what matters as an elected representative, right?
1: Yeah, and that was from an interview in 2006. And he actually, he didn't change his rhetoric on the Hyde Amendment until 2019, during the presidential primaries, when he realized it wasn't a popular thing to campaign on.
0: But then he changed back to supporting the Hyde Amendment again. It was actually only a very brief departure. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> opportunistic, shall a we say? A little bit. Maybe. But he's happy with himself, though. Yeah, that's the most important thing. I mean, go Joe. <laughs> So just looking at reproductive health care under racial capitalism, we're already getting a huge glimpse into the lack of health access for Black and Indigenous women against a backdrop of extremely high maternal mortality rates and rates of sexual violence.
1: And we know that in a society as racially and economically stratified as the United States, the wealthy will never have any trouble obtaining abortion services and reproductive health care. It is poor and working-class women, femmes, black, indigenous, queer, and other people of color who will suffer the most without federally protected rights and resources. Mm -hmm. It's the same people who are already suffering under racial capitalism. We've recently seen this assault on reproductive rights extend to LGBTQ and two-spirit communities in terms of accessing hormones and other gender-specific health care, where the same race and class divisions apply.
0: Yeah, there's a massive war on LGBTQIA and two-spirit communities. The evangelical right, backed up by their dark money collaborators in Congress, are making sure that these communities, as well as women of color, poor women and femmes and working class women across the board, continue to pay the price for their racist and fascist domestic policy agenda. And it just so happens that the 33 states that have either criminalized or are not protecting abortion are the same states with the worst economic indicators in the United States. Not a coincidence. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the states that will ban abortion first are the same states with the lowest minimum wages, states that are less likely to have expanded Medicaid. States that are more likely to be anti-union, right-to-work states, and states with higher-than-average incarceration rates.
1: And here are some more statistics from the Economic Policy Institute.
0: Some of the economic consequences
1: of being denied an abortion include a higher chance of being in poverty even four years after, a lower likelihood of being employed full-time, and an increase in unpaid debts and financial distress lasting years. Laws that restrict abortion providers, so-called trap laws, or targeted regulation of abortion providers, have led to women in those states being less likely to move into higher-paying occupations. Abortion is often framed as a culture war issue, distinct from material bread-and-butter economic issues, but in reality, abortion rights are economic rights, and this decision means the loss of economic security, independence, and mobility for abortion seekers. Low and middle income people, especially black and brown women, will bear the brunt of this impact.
0: Yeah, just like we've seen. Um, I mean, abortion rights are fundamental rights to any civilized society that dares to call itself a democracy. And, you know, ironically, Roe v. Wade was on the books for less than 50 years, from 1973 to 2022. Before 1973, safe and legal abortion was just not widely available. You know, certain doctors performed abortions illegally and backroom abortions and botched abortions were extremely common. Women died from self-induced abortions. I mean, it was an incredibly dangerous time in our country for uh, centuries. So finally, you have Roe v. Wade legalize abortion in 1973. But starting in 1976, you have the Hyde Amendment.
1: So that's only three years later. Yeah. So in reality, poor and working class women have never had access to abortion. Right. And since Roe was first passed, many states have passed abortion restricting laws, fetal heartbeat laws, parental consent laws, six-week laws, Partial et
0: birth, blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And all these things just make it more difficult for lower income women, especially to obtain an abortion.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's important to note that unlike in other countries that have been through this battle... Abortion rights have never been codified in the United States, never added to the Constitution. They have always been subject to being overturned by the Supreme Court.
1: So the threat of losing these rights and the ability to chip away at them for decades is unique to the United States. Right. Looking at access to abortion, what we really see is class war, Mm -hmm. just like with every other issue. You know, health care, human rights, not actually available in our capitalist
0: society unless you're rich. Right. The United States likes to call itself democratic, but if we really want to see examples around the world of where poor and working class women do have equal access to healthcare, we have to look at more socialist and communist countries.
1: It's no coincidence that socialist and communist countries around the world have often made sure that abortion was always legal. Patriarchy is one of the oldest forms of class oppression, with women being the largest class in the world. Socialism and communism have often understood this in their founding doctrines. From the Soviet Union to Cuba, reproductive health care and abortion rights have often been enshrined, codified
0: rights that cannot be voted away. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit lengthy, but I want to read you the Soviet decree on abortion established in 1920 in response to a growing spate of illegal abortions in the Soviet Union and complications and deaths. Quote, In past decades, the number of women resorting to artificial termination of pregnancy has grown both in the West and here in this country. The legislation of all countries combats this evil by punishing the women who choose to have an abortion and the doctor who makes it. Without leading to favorable results, this method of combating abortions has driven the operation underground and made the woman a victim of mercenary and ignorant quacks, who make a profession of these secret operations. As a result, up to 50% of such women are infected in the course of operation, and up to 4% of them die.
1: To continue from this resolution, the workers' and peasants' government is conscious of this serious evil to the community. It combats this evil by propaganda against abortions among working women. By working for socialism and by introducing the protection of maternity and infancy on an extensive scale, it feels assured of achieving the gradual disappearance of this evil. The People's Commissariats of Health and of Justice, anxious to protect the health of the women and considering that the method of repressions in this field fails entirely to achieve this
0: aim, have decided... Number one to permit such operations to be made freely and without any charge in Soviet hospitals where conditions are assured of minimizing the harm of the operation. Number two, it is absolutely forbidden for anyone, but a doctor to carry out this operation. Number three, any nurse or midwife found guilty of making such an operation will be deprived of the right to practice and tried by a people's court. Number four, a doctor carrying out an abortion in his private practice for the purposes of profit will be called to account by a people's court.
1: So the Soviet Union legalized abortions in 1920. Right. Their, this right was temporarily taken away by Stalin in the 30s until 1955 when Khrushchev legalized it once again.
0: Yep. So still much better than the United States, which yeah. was excluded, which excluded poor and working class women yes. <laughs> three years later. Yeah. So here's another quote from multipolarista. This is Ben Norton's independent journalistic website. And this is about abortion in Cuba. Before the 1959 revolution, Cubans lived through a period of U.S. neocolonialism and private medical clinics thrived by offering U.S. quote, health tourists services like abortion that were not available in the United States. During this time, Cuba had the second-highest rural infant and maternal death rates in Latin America. Most Cubans had no access to health care, especially outside of the capital, La Habana. There was only one rural hospital in the country. Abortion was effectively only legal for Cubans who could afford it, a reality we still face in the United States.
1: Only with socialism and the expansion of free health care to all came a full actualization of abortion rights in Cuba. After the triumph of the revolution in 1959, health outcomes improved immediately. Cuba now has the most doctors per capita in the world. It even has a higher life expectancy and lower maternal mortality rate than the United States. Full access to abortion was institutionalized in 1965 on four basic grounds. It is the woman who decides, it needs to take place at a hospital, it needs to be carried out
0: by expert staff, and it needs to be totally free. Nice. That's the status of abortion rights in Cuba. Other communist leaders, Mao Zedong, Thomas Sankara, Marxist revolutionary and pan-Africanist who served as the president of Burkina Faso, have also spoken out about the absolute necessity for legal equality between the sexes in the means of production and in all social relations. Sankara once said, quote, In fact, throughout the ages and wherever the patriarchy has triumphed, there has been a close parallel between class exploitation and women's inferior status. End quote. Here's Eugene Perrier, activist, author, and politician with the Party for Socialist Liberation, speaking to the historic relationship between socialism and women's rights. I'm curious, what is is there? What's the connection between socialism and reproductive rights? I think it's a good. Yeah, it's, it's a, a good, good point.
1: I, well, you know, one of the things that. Uh, Mao Tung said many years ago is socialism can't be consolidated without the liberation of women. And I think when you look at the history of socialist movements around the world, I mean, one thing should be abundantly true leadership of women has been a prominent and important part of, I would say almost all progressive movements, but certainly of the socialist movement in this country in Europe in the global south. So that in and of itself is one of the connections is that socialism, which has always held out that the issue of patriarchy is a form of class oppression that moving beyond not just capitalism, but all class society towards communism should uproot has placed at the center the importance of, you know, not just uh, abortion rights, but the rights and the leadership of women in general to have, you know, total and complete equality in all spe- all spheres. Yeah, that's a great clip from Eugene Perrier. Yep. And, you know, as socialists, we have to establish this connection. It is in capitalist societies where women fare far worse in terms of being exploited, treated as second-class citizens, deprived of health care, and their basic human rights.
0: Yeah, all across the board, not just with reproductive rights.
1: And as early as 1913, Lenin wrote quote, it goes without saying that this does not by any means prevent us from demanding the unconditional annulment of all laws against abortions or against the distribution of medical literature on contraceptive measures, etc. Such laws are nothing but the hypocrisy of the ruling classes. These laws do not heal the ulcers of capitalism. They merely turn them into malignant ulcers that are especially painful for the oppressed masses, end quote.
0: Wow. So as early as 1913, Lenin was advocating for protecting women's reproductive rights and warning us about the dangers of class war on poor and oppressed women if we did not. Of course, we wouldn't know anything about Lenin or this kind of communist literature in the United States, would we? That's not taught in school. No.
1: So getting back to the capitalist United States, where health outcomes for poor and working class women are terrible, where abortion rights have never been codified and have been eroded year after year since our relatively late legalization of abortion in 1973, far after major communist and socialist countries. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the role of the Democratic Party in protecting these rights.
0: <laughs> okay. okay, let's do this after all it's commonly understood that republicans are the bad guys here they are the ones who have been launching a right-wing evangelical war against women's rights of all kinds lgbtq two-spirit rights for decades and i don't want to overlook this but to try to paint reproductive rights as a red versus blue issue is a huge mistake when you look at the long history of the democratic party's failure to protect Failure to codify and complete surrender to right-wing agendas. The failure to stand up to the patriarchal and fascistic assaults on reproductive rights is one enormous example of the Democratic Party's increasingly common abandonment of the working class and poor under neoliberalism and capitalism more generally. While the Democratic Party is always the first party to parade black and brown faces on their fundraising ads, suggesting that they represent a socially and economically diverse United States. In practice, big D democratic policies of neoliberalism over the last 40 plus years have left most black and indigenous people of color as well as the white working class further and further behind. And no amount of voting has changed the increasing levels of dark money or corporate corruption in our political system. And the Democrats have rarely stood up for reproductive rights when they've had the chance, including right now at this present moment.
1: Right. And
0: you did a really good
1: job of describing this in your article, so I'm just going to go over a quick summary of just a few Democratic failures to protect reproductive rights since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. So under President Jimmy Carter, Carter opposed abortion and did not publicly defend Roe v. Wade. Throughout his presidency, he consistently opposed federal funding for abortions, opening the door for right-wing attacks. Vice President Gore under President Bill Clinton, had a long history of opposing abortion before he was selected to be the vice president. And President Bill Clinton, he had a much better record on abortion, vetoing abortion bans and signing an executive order immediately upon entering office that did away with the gag rule and other restrictions. But he also held a majority with the House and Senate, and he failed to pass legislation to codify Roe. And then President Obama in his first term, the Democrats had a supermajority with the House and Senate. And Obama had promised to codify Roe v. Wade, but once in office he suddenly decided it wasn't a priority. We want to play a couple of clips here. Here is Obama on the campaign trail in two thousand seven.
2: Well the first thing I'd do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act.
1: And here he is after he was president in 2009.
2: The Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority.
0: (laughs) That's it? That's all you got, Obama? Two years later? That's it? (sighs) Geez. Well, I guess once he was off the campaign trail, it just didn't really matter what his first legislative priority was going to be. Right.
1: I guess he was lying on the campaign trail. That's pretty bad. Pretty typical. Um, Let's get a little bit more into the history of the Democratic Party here. Um, You really laid this out in your article. They're just a do-nothing party when it comes to protecting abortion rights. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go into listing off a few more things. In 2016, Hillary Clinton chose a pro-life candidate, Senator Tim Kaine, as her running mate. Yeah. And then, of course, Joe Biden, as we mentioned earlier, throughout his career as a senator and now president, has staunchly supported the Hyde Amendment, except for this brief moment in 2019 when he was running for president. But Once he took office as in 2020, he stated that he, in fact, would be willing to sign federal budget bills that included the Hyde Amendment.
0: Yep, so basically his change of, of heart around the Hyde Amendment lasted a few months.
1: Yeah, until he was president.
0: Right. So back to supporting the Hyde Amendment after a very brief detour. Then in May of 2022, Nancy Pelosi aggressively campaigned for Representative Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, against his challenger, a progressive pro-choice candidate named Jessica Cisneros, despite pressure from pro-choice advocates who pointed out that Henry Cuellar was the only Democrat in the House who opposed abortion. With the support of Pelosi and 18 House Democrats, Cuellar eked out a victory over pro-choice Cisneros. Thanks, Nancy. Also in 2022, May of 2022, Senate Democrats failed to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which was constructed to prevent states from imposing unfair restrictions on abortion providers. Gee, that seems like a good... Good points. In hindsight, that seems like that would have been really handy. And then in June of 2022, less than one week after Roe v. Wade was overturned, President Biden announced his plan to appoint anti-choice Republican lawyer Chad Meredith to a lifetime federal judgeship in Kentucky. Talk about insult to injury.
1: Yeah. Wow. Right after Roe was overturned, here he is. Less than a week supporting an anti-choice Republican.
0: Yeah, I mean it's such so clearly a a litmus test this pro-choice thing for Biden.
1: Yeah, these Ugh. these Democrats, they've just consistently failed to protect reproductive rights as well as, you know, cynically maneuvering to appoint anti-choice candidates when it serves their political agenda. Yep. And they really think they can convince people that voting in more Democrats is going
0: to solve this problem? Row, row, row your vote. Roe, November. Yep. It is very cynical and disingenuous, especially when you look at the kind of fundraising that the Democrats have been doing on the abortion issue ever since Roe was overturned. You might have noticed a flurry of email and text messages from the Democratic Party asking you to chip in money to support Democratic candidates who will purportedly support abortion rights. And encourage you to get out the vote and and vote Democrat in the next election. Definitely notice that.
1: They've used everything from Rovember to row, row, row your vote to you know The Democrats need money. Yes. The Democrats
0: <laughs> need money. That's that's the bottom line. The Democrats
1: need money. Uh here's a here's a clip from President Biden who's actually t- talking about that.
3: When tens of millions of women vote this year, they won't be alone. Millions and millions of men We'll be taking up the fight alongside them to restore the right to choose and the broader right to privacy in this nation, which they denied existed. And the challenge from the court to the American women and men, this is a nation. The challenge is go out and vote. Well, for God's sake, there's an election November. Vote, 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 vote
0: vote 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 i mean you know you should have all kinds of faith in the democrats with the track record that they have i mean democrats have the house the senate and the presidency right now how often does that actually happen why is roe v wade not already codified
1: we didn't vote hard enough
0: (laughs) we didn't vote hard enough did we we should have voted harder we just should have voted. maybe if we had given more money to the democratic fundraising apparatus, none of this would have happened.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Um, but you know, there are all kinds of things Democrats could have already done under Biden. Like mm-hmm. you say, holding the majority, control in the House, the Senate, the executive branch. There are so many things they could do to protect abortion rights for tens of millions of people. Um, these things include you know, eliminating the filibuster using a simple majority—the mm-hmm. nuclear option—and mm-hmm. codifying Roe v. Wade, like Obama promised, like Biden is promising to do after the midterms. The midterms. <laughs> they could have done this before these anti-abortion trigger laws took effect. Yep. Um, they could have also pressured all the Democrats, including Mansion and Cinema to get behind this, but of course they didn't do anything to pr- pressure no. those two
0: rotating villains. There are any number of tactics they could have used to actually pressure people in Congress to get behind codifying this. Right.
1: Nope. Um, Biden could declare a public health emergency, which is what this really is. hmm You know, the tens of millions of women affected by it, this is a health emergency. Mm-hmm. They could use federal facilities, such as military hospitals, to offer abortion care
0: mm-hmm.
1: because, you know, the Hyde Amendment doesn't apply to emergency funding.
0: Right. Or put clinics on federal lands.
1: Yep. They could expand the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. You know, the packing the court option. Mm-hmm. They could restrain judicial review. Mm-hmm. They could have a vote on Escobar's bill protecting clinics. Right and they could expand reproductive health education and access to plan c
0: yeah i mean this was a list that uh, i think aoc came up with part of these some of these things but they were echoed by by many progressives throughout congress that you know federal funding uh, federal lands uh, expanding the court using tactics to pressure democrats have the democrats done any of these things no And many liberals will just defend Joe Biden like blindly, like saying, well, he can't eliminate the filibuster without the support of Senator Joe Manchin. You know, he needs Joe Manchin to reach 51 votes. But the question remains, why hasn't Biden ever tried to pressure Joe Manchin in the past? Why hasn't Biden gone to West Virginia to speak directly to Manchin's voters? Why did Biden and every top Democrat refuse to support Manchin's progressive pro-choice challenger, Paula Jean Sweringen, when she primaried Joe Manchin in 2018?
1: Well, yeah, I think Joe Manchin and Joe Biden are playing for the same team here. Yep. Manchin still has his position as chair of the Senate Energy Committee. Yeah, he
0: could have gotten rid of he could have taken him down from that committee.
1: It's just disgusting that he- a coal baron is in this position in the first place, mm-hmm. but the Democrats have never done anything to even approach removing him from this position. Mm-hmm. And also, Manchin's wife was given a job in the Biden administration as co-chair of the Appalachian board. Gross. So, you know, Manchin isn't opposing the Democratic Party. He's just their excuse not to get anything meaningful done, which
0: is what the Democrats like. Yep. That's how they like it. They need to have an alibi, a rotating villain of the week or the month or the year. Joe Manchin, Kristen Senema, the parliamentarian, any number of villains could stand in the way. And, you know, these villains really occupy a special role for corporate Democrats. They provide a public alibi for a corrupt party that is not truly aligned with people's interests. They just need an excuse to keep abandoning the working class.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's really important to emphasize how the Democrats have a majority now. Right now. And they could abolish the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade if they only had the political will to do so.
0: But they don't. Yeah.
1: And um, here yeah, let's play a quick clip of our... Favorite neoliberal queen, Nancy Pelosi, on Meet
3: the Press. But can you be a Democrat and the support of the Democratic Party if you're pro life? Of course.
0: Of course. I have served for many years in Congress with members who have not shared my very positive, uh, my family would say, aggressive position on promoting a woman's right to choose. But what you asked at the first part of the question before you went off uh, was about what unifies Democrats. And what unifies, people say to me all the time, oh, you you're do such a good job unifying uh, the House Democrats. I say I don't. Our values unify us. We are unified with our commitment to America's working families. Well, obviously, it's not aggressive, Nancy. Not aggressive at all. Damn, that says it all. <laughs> Democrats are unified by our values. But if Your values just happen to be that women should be forced into giving birth and raising a child on zero income. That's fine. The Democratic Speaker of the House is just fine with that.
1: And of course, you know, this current administration is doing nothing. You know, they agree with Nancy Pelosi. And here is Vice President Kamala Harris in a June 27th interview, less than a week after Roe v. Wade was overturned.
4: Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130 odd days away from an election, which is going to include... Senate races. Right. Part of the issue here is that the court has acted. Now Congress needs to act. But we if you count the votes don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening in 130 odd days. I'm taking, for example, thinking of of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law right we say codified Mm -hmm. put it in law what do you say to democratic voters who argue wait a minute we worked really hard to elect a democratic president and vice president democratic led house a democratic led senate do it now but do what now uh, what now i mean we we need we listen what we did we extended the child tax credit for the well, first year well i'm sorry year, when i say right? do what yeah. do it now yeah. act uh legislatively to make abortion rights legal we feel the same way it do it now congress needs to do it now in terms of permanently putting in place a, a, a clear indication that it is the law of the land that women have the ability and the right to make decisions about their reproductive care and the government does not have the right to make those decisions for a woman.
0: <laughs> do it now. Oh, we feel the same way. We feel the same way. Do it and do what now? Do what now? What are we talking <laughs> about again?
1: There's an election in 130 days, guys. We just need you to get out there and Don't vote. Don't
0: forget about the election and the fundraising. Don't forget about that. Wait, what were we talking about? Do it. Do what now? Stop asking these hard questions about federal <laughs> land. Oh, what is this federal land thing? What is that about? We have an election coming up. We have an election coming up. That's the thing we need to focus on. Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs> Oh my God! And if is as, as if that wasn't bad enough. As if that wasn't bad enough. Now we have Biden using abortion rights like a carrot, waving them over voters' heads, saying that if that he promises to codify Roe, if, if and only if the Democrats win big in the midterms. So you know all those people that got out and voted for him the first time, fuck them. You got to <laughs> get out there again. You got to do it again because once is not enough.
1: This is the most important midterm election in our lifetimes. In
0: our lifetimes, you guys. In our lifetimes. Get out the vote. Row, row, row.
3: The court got Roe right nearly 50 years ago, and I believe Congress should codify Roe once and for all. Right now, we're short a handful of votes. If you care about the right to choose, then you got to vote. That's why, in these midterm elections, are so critical to elect more Democratic senators to the United States Senate and more Democrats to keep control of the House of Representatives. And Folks, if we do that, here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade.
0: Yeah, so. Um how long has Biden been in office now? Two years? About two years, yeah. Yeah, and his first policy agenda after the midterms is going to be to codify Roe. Yeah, he sounds just like Obama. Promises, promises, promises. Yep. except for that Hyde Amendment, you know. He still holds to that yeah. Hyde Amendment. So really, he's just talking about codifying Roe for, for wealthy women, not for anybody else. Anyway, talk about too little, too late. What a bunch of empty rhetoric. Biden's administration has done nothing to treat this like the public health emergency and human rights emergency that it is. And meanwhile,
1: Democrats are using the money they've been fundraising off of restoring Roe v. Wade, a record amount, to prop up far right Republican candidates.
0: Wait, what? What is this fundraising strategy?
1: So, according to Open Secrets reporting in 2022, political groups and nonprofits aligned with the Democratic Party have spent nearly 44 million on advertising campaigns across five states: Republican primaries to boost the profile of far-right candidates in California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Maryland. Oh my god. So if you donate to the Democratic Party, there's a good chance your money is being spent on anti-abortion candidates, as well as anti-immigrant, white supremacist candidates, you know, the far-right candidates who they're backing.
0: The Democratic Party has spent nearly $44 million propping up far-right candidates. This is just like the Pied Piper strategy with Trump. Remember when HRC's campaign worked really hard in 2015 to elevate Trump? and encouraged the media to give him maximum airtime. And of course they did. At least $2 billion worth of free media coverage went to Trump in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election.
1: Yeah, he received something like 80% of all election coverage.
0: Yeah, it was ridiculous. Well, Bernie received like, what, 4% or something? Yeah, it was Probably rid- less
1: than that. Yeah,
0: less than that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, this Pied Piper strategy of elevating Trump or elevating far-right candidates to make sure that they are the candidate that Democrats are opposing. You know, the Democrats believed in 2015 that Hillary would win, would, would win against Trump more than she would win against a more moderate Republican. And therefore, it was to the Democratic advantage to push Trump as the legitimate contender. Of course, there was little or no concern about what would happen if Trump actually won and a far-right authoritarian became president.
1: Right. And, you know, it's the same thing here. The lesson is, if you're giving money to the Democrats to save Roe v. Wade,
0: chances are they might be spending it on advertising for anti-choice Republican candidates. That's insane. And we wonder why the Overton window keeps shifting to the right. Democrats don't think they can win against moderate Republicans, so they keep pouring money into far right-wing campaigns to make sure that they're running against fascists. And meanwhile, they keep moving their own platforms to the right so that they will appear more moderate to Republicans. That's how the Overton window works. And right now, Democrats are holding all of these row, row, row your vote rallies across the country and, of course, asking for more of your money. The Uniparty is corrupt, everybody. You cannot count on Democrats to bring back reproductive rights. Their track record simply does not support that.
1: Yeah, especially considering that the incumbent party usually loses seats in the midterms. It seems like a pretty hollow promise coming from Biden that he'll codify Roe if the Dems win.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's what he's actually banking on, losing the midterms so he won't have to keep his promise. If he were going to treat this like the public health emergency that it is, he would have done all these things that we have already outlined and discussed. Speaking of Democrats supporting Republicans, uh, Taters and I wrote an article in 2020 called The Assistance, Not the Resistance. And in it, we detailed a number of ways that the Democratic Party props up Republicans and the far right, including with judicial appointments which, of course, has a huge and direct impact on reproductive rights.
1: Dems have really been totally complicit in this political shift. Remember, it was the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. You know, Republicans blocked the nomination of Merrick Garland, but the Democrats failed to stand up and allowed Trump to appoint three judges yeah, to the Supreme Court.
0: Three judges.
1: You know, They didn't really protest or make any attempt to block them. hmm There's a pattern of Democrats helping confirm Trump appointees, actually. Mm -hmm. In October of 2017, the Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. This vote was 55 to 43, with three Democrats crossing over to confirm.
0: Yeah, three Democrats crossed over with Republicans to make sure that Amy Coney Barrett was appointed.
1: And you know, not only have some Democrats been complicit in voting to confirm even the most right-wing of Trump's judicial appointments, but Senate Minority Leader under Trump, Chuck Schumer, actually cut a deal with Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, to fast-track many of these judicial confirmations. Mm. In late August of 2018, just before the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, Schumer made this deal with the devil that gave 11 Trump nominees immediate approval and fast-tracked eight more for a vote.
0: Wow. Fast-tracking Trump judges so that Democrats can go on vacation sooner. That's the Democrats in a nutshell. And I think that while most liberals and leftists know that Republicans are leading the charge in this nationwide war on women's rights and human rights, to pretend that this is just a red versus blue issue, again, obscures the deep political and economic relationships that actually prevent top Democrats from standing up to Republicans on this and many other issues. The sacrifice of reproductive rights, while perhaps morally distasteful to some Democrats in power, is a price that the corporate party is completely willing to pay in order to consolidate their wealth and fuel their fundraising apparatus. But of course, corporate Democrats don't actually pay anything. Poor and working class women pay. This is just one more example of how the oligarchy is waging class war using poor women and women of color as their pawns. And yet
1: they fully expect all of us to turn out at election time and vote for them. Mm -hmm.
0: Row, row, row your vote away from the Democratic Party.
1: We wanted to leave you with something more tangible, though, more immediate, actionable items. Clearly, we don't believe that voting will address this crisis of restoring women's basic human rights.
0: That's right. We're not suggesting that you don't vote, but it's clear that especially at a national level, Your corporate candidates are far more interested in using you to fundraise than to actually represent you.
1: Right. If you really want to vote on this issue, you could work to protect it constitutionally at the state level, like what Kansas did this summer. You could make sure abortion rights are enshrined in your state constitution. Many states have the ability to vote on ballot measures. I don't know of any that are doing so yet, but it would be possible to get abortion rights on the ballot for a general vote, a more democratic way of deciding it. Kansas, a conservative state, voted down the attempt to remove abortion rights from their state constitution in a vote of 59 to 41. That's a pretty significant majority.
0: Yeah, and it's ironic that the Republican Party has always been more for states' rights And now it's probably our only electoral hope at this moment. But remember, we will never vote our way into socialism. The corporate uniparty will not allow it. We have seen what they have done to even mild social democratic candidates like Bernie Sanders.
1: Absolutely. We can't support neoliberalism to fight fascism. I encourage our listeners to check out episode six, on why the best way to fight fascism is to actually fight neoliberalism. A lesson that it seems that many activist groups haven't learned yet as they scream about the need to vote Democrat. But if voting harder won't save us, what can we do? Revolution.
0: (laughs) Yay! No, seriously. I mean, the capitalist system has failed us. We need a new political economy. And only a mass movement based on socialism can fix this problem. Is it okay if we end every episode this way <laughs> just calling for revolution? Yeah, I think that's a really
1: appropriate, you know, the truth is that we must embrace a different kind of political economy one that centers the most marginalized and oppressed. It's no coincidence that socialist and communist countries around the world have often made sure that abortion was always legal.
0: Here in the United States, where communist and socialist political parties and movements have been systematically destroyed since the country's inception. It will take a mass working class movement on a scale we haven't seen in this country to mount a resistance to the dictatorship of transnational capital, the fascism of the 21st century. And since fascism is an international project, the resistance to must be international. It's not gonna be easy. In this current US political climate where Democrats are launching a new cold war on Russia and China, where anti-communist, red-baiting rhetoric has re-emerged and been embraced by both Democratic and Republican parties, it will require massive discipline, education, organizing, and a multi-generational commitment to develop and sustain alternative models to capitalism and to build a strong working-class movement. These movements must be able to withstand the attacks of the capitalist system itself as it tries to delegitimize socialist and communist movements, inside and outside the belly of the beast.
1: We must understand the repeal of Roe v. Wade as one of many fundamental human rights that will be casualties of class war within a global shift toward fascism. If we can understand the loss of these rights within this geopolitical context, we can also see the urgent necessity for international socialist, communist, and anti-capitalist movements to unite in order to mobilize for this battle for reproductive justice, as just one of many battles that will require our unity and solidarity within a larger global class war against fascism.
0: We believe it is past time for all of our social struggles against patriarchy, racism, colonialism, environmental destruction, and economic inequality to embrace a radical critique of capitalism and its alternatives if we are to collectively survive the fascist class war and ecocidal forces that are coming our way and quickly. the bourgeoisie no racists, no sexist no bigots no fascists for equality burn burn down the state no more social class no private property no corrupt government rise and join the mass hey crawdads and taters is a self-produced and directed production by aaron mccarley and burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.